What are the signs that can warn us that a friend could be sliding toward disaster? How can we help one another escape immorality's clutch? Our study leader Dave Wurtzen begins our study titled, A Cure for Immorality, reminding us again that knowing the right facts does not ensure correct action when it comes to this emotive issue. We discussed the problem of sexual immorality and we discussed the prevention of sexual immorality. I gave you several principles in how to overcome those problems of lust and passion that we all wrestle with. And I think it's very important for us to recognize that you can know all of those things. You can know that marriage is the place to enjoy freedom in marriage. And I've had some interesting discussions during the week as I can tell that some of you still labor under the emotional heaviness of not feeling that there can be a free expression of sexuality in the marriage relationship. The scripture is very clear, according to Proverbs chapter 5, that you should be exhilarated, you should be intoxicated. It's the one time in the scriptures that it will teach us you need to go out of your mind in love for somebody. In fact, that's why it becomes such an emotional hassle for God's people, because Satan wants to rob you of that fountain of marital sexual love. We've also exposed the seduction of the evils of immorality. And in Proverbs chapter 7, we were able to see how immorality will reach out and try to seduce the naive young person. And I think that all of us as adults need to join in as well and realize that we can be seduced as well. We also have looked very seriously at the deadly consequences of sexual immorality. But I think it's important before we leave our discussion of uh, what Proverbs teaches about immorality, I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, well, can it be cured? Because the truth of the matter is, uh, for the last few weeks, I've been trying to take a shot at reaching some of our young people that have not gotten involved in it. Some of our young people have just begun to develop, they've just begun to be tempted, and we've tried to lay a foundation to try to prevent them falling into that pit of sexual immorality. But the truth of the matter is that as I talk to an audience like this, some of you have already fallen very deeply into that pit. In fact, it's very possible over the years, what I observe is that a believer will suddenly be seduced by this area. One of the very first things you notice is that they stop gathering together with God's people. They're not here anymore. And I think one of the things that we as American believers, we need to really get concerned for people when we notice that they're not fellowshipping with God's people, when we miss their presence. We live in a society where it's every man for themselves. In other words, if you decide you don't want to fellowship with God's people, that's your own business. If you want to decide to have problems in your marriage, if you want to get involved in immorality, that's all your own business. That's the fundamental character of the American believer today. What I want to share with you is that it's all of our business. And it doesn't mean that we go around like gossips because that's something else that, the, that Satan's trying to get us to do. But it means that we become deeply involved in prayer for others. It also means that if you know someone and they're a friend to you and you know for sure that they're being trapped, Galatians chapter 6 tells us, if anyone be overcome in a fault, let those who are spiritual, and that's not just the elders in a group. It's all the family of God that are walking in the spirit, that have not been seduced at that particular moment, they need to be reaching back 
and try to very gently, notice the word gently, restore that person. Now, there's two fundamental lies that the evil one tells someone that slips into immorality. And what I share today about sexual immorality would apply to any sin that we become a slave to, whether it be anger or gossip or slander or stealing or drugs or pride or uh, just having a violent, vicious, factious spirit. Whatever sin that you and I might be trapped in at a certain time, these are two lies that Satan tries to get us involved in. One is the idea that the sin is not really that bad. It's really not sin. It's called the exception clause. Satan will tell you, if this is wrong, I know, ordinarily, under ordinary circumstances, this would be wrong. But this is an exception. And the idea is that I know that ordinarily that I would not get involved in this immorality, but my marriage stinks and things really aren't going very well. We haven't been happy for years and I've met someone who's marvelous. In fact, I really believe that if I could get rid of my other marriage partner and I marry this individual, we can live happily ever after. We can even serve God together. And the idea is it's the exception clause. It's really not that bad to get involved with somebody else. Or it's not that bad, just have one fling. You know, one escape from the tedium of a marriage relationship. Or if you're in high school, this is a holiday time. It's the exception clause, and the idea is that it's really not that bad. Everyone does it. It's just the accepted thing. Now, that's a lie. That's a terrible lie. It is that bad. And the reason it's so bad is that you're walking away from love, you're walking away from truth, you're walking away from dependability. So watch out whenever you find your mind rationalizing on the exception clause. I know God's word says this, I know the Ten Commandments say this, but this is the one time of exception. The second lie that Satan tells us, and I think it's a worse lie, and that's this lie. What you've done is just too bad. In fact, I hear it over and over again in my counseling ministry. You all are thoroughly convinced that nobody else has ever sinned like you. You see, what you've done is too bad. And what Satan tells you is that because what you've done is so bad, why don't you just admit that you're a bad person, that you're not one of those goody church-going people, and don't add hypocrisy to your list of sins. Why don't you just admit the truth? You're a bum case. And at least be honest about it. Now that's one of Satan's biggest lies. And it's basically this lie. Your heavenly father really can't forgive you. He can't love you. He won't ever renew a relationship with you. And that's the most paralyzing lie of all. Because it's the lie that gets you to go out there into the world out there in the enemy territory, away from the family of God's people. And you're basing that whole escape upon a lie. Because I want to share with you the cure for sexual immorality is founded in a father's love. And I want you to turn to James chapter 4. And all of us need to listen to what James chapter 4 tells us about immorality, but it also, in this chapter, expands it out into any kind of sin that we might become enslaved in. James chapter 4. He begins like this, a very practical area. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now that's a good question. 
What causes fights and quarrels in our marriages? which start to produce a bummed situation where emotions are frazzled, where needs are not met, where there's not affection, which leaves a couple in unbelievably vulnerable for sexual immorality. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you in the church? Why is it that some of you can invite other members over to eat? What causes fights and quarrels among you. We've got to be honest this morning. You don't all get along. I wish you all did. The truth of the matter is you don't. You pretend you all get along. And you smile sweetly and you talk sweetly, but the truth of the matter is every one of you at one time or another in your life with your kids, with your spouses, with your friends, with fellow members of a church, there's fights and quarrels among you. It's humanity. It's your humanness. Don't sit there this morning and say, oh, I'm glad so-and-so is here. Now, preachers always do that to you. But I want to share with you, it's really important not to be thinking, oh, if so-and-so would only hear this. I want you to hear this, and I need to hear this. James is a very practical guy. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And I think Satan delights in causing fights and quarrels among brothers and sisters in God's family. And he answers the question point blank. Don't they come from your own desires that war within you? You want something, but you don't get it. So you kill, you murder. It's very strong language. You murder and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. So you quarrel and fight. Now that's an amazing statement. All fights and quarrels when we cross over the line from a discussion into an, an argument, every time we do that, it's because our own desires become Lord and King and God of our lives. That's what James is telling us. He's saying that the root problem in all of our factions, all of our arguments, whether it be in a marriage, in a church, in extended family, whatever it might be, the fundamental problem is the problem of idolatry. And this is the idol that we're bowing down. It's just like we're bowing down and we're worshiping an idol. Now, what is that idol? It's your, our own desires right inside of here. You see, as we gather together this morning, we're gathered together to worship the true God, the Lord of the universe. We are gathered together to worship the Father of heaven and earth who's really there. But as we gather together, there's another side of our personality that doesn't worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It worships our own desires. It worships bringing pleasure to ourselves. It worships being happy in ourselves. It worships doing anything that'll make me get over the boredom, start to feel good. And that's where all disintegrations of relationships start. Now, we excuse it. We say, well, we just have a personality conflict. We've got bad blood. We don't really, you know, the genes are not right. It was just a mistake. We make all kinds of environmental genetic reasons why we have these problems. God says the problem is idolatry. Idolatry in Dave Wurtz's heart and in your heart. The God of our life easily becomes the desires of our own heart, our own power, our own prestige, our own influence in a group, our own desire 
for personal power and feeling good and being happy. And there's nothing wrong with feeling good and being happy. But it can't be God. It can't be the idol that we're bowing before. So James says that we fight and quarrel. In fact, this is the root of murder. And a lot of interpreters have tried to wiggle out of this word and say, well, that's really carrying a little bit too far. But where do you think murder comes from? Murder comes from these passions that we have in our heart, the passion to get our own way, the passion to feel good ourselves. And in a moment of time when somebody crosses our path and it looks like they're blocking that pathway, zappa, we can murder somebody. And we all need to realize that tiger that's in our tent. Now, are we just talking about rank unbelievers? Are we just talking about people that are out there? No. James is talking to believers. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And notice how spiritual these people are. They, they can't get what they want, so they try to get God in on the bargain. It says, you quarrel and you fight, but you do not have because you do not ask God. Now, that's really a spiritual thing. They're not asking God, so now we're going to ask God. Look at the next verse, verse 3. When you do ask, you do not receive. In other words, we've got a praying people here. They are asking God about their desires. They're saying, Lord, I want this, I want this, I want that, I want that. So they're spiritual people, quote, quote. They are praying. Incredible. But James goes on and says, but you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, brothers and sisters, those first three verses are saying this one basic principle. And it's the principle that underlies why we get involved in immorality, why we have fights and quarrels, and it's so important that we face the truth. I want every one of you deep in your heart to realize that it's not the other guy, it's you and it's me. And the problem that we're all wrestling with, it's part of our own nature, is that we tend to worship our own pleasures, feeling good. And that becomes God. If Jesus can help us to feel good, we want Jesus. When Jesus cuts a cross feeling good, forget about Jesus, i got to feel good. You see, if you tell people, Jesus is your means to feel good. Jesus is your way to find money, which can help you to feel good. To find wealth and health, you want to feel good. You're not going to die until you're 75. If you do what we tell you, if you listen to us, Jesus will give you everything you have ever desired. If you tell people that, you're guaranteed to end up with immorality and violence and stealing and everything else. And it doesn't surprise me at all. And the same thing could happen right here. You see, it's not out there. It's in here. It's in Dave Wurtz and it's in you. We tend to worship pleasure. We tend to worship our own desires to feel good. And that's what makes us fight and quarrel. It's what makes us cross the line. And instead of just being able to talk openly about issues, even disagree, we get all involved in getting our own way and getting it our way and having the influence and fulfilling our desires. Idolatry, the ultimate idolatry that I believe that Satan is using in my own heart, and I think he's using it in your heart, I think he's using it across the world among believers, is to get us not to bow down to a bale or an ash tart. 
a naked female idol. I don't think that's where Satan is really attacking. I think he begins by getting us to bow down in our own hearts to our own desire for pleasure. And that's where immorality starts. You say, how in the world does someone get involved in immorality? If you today, and if I today, if I am living for my own physical pleasures and desires, then I'm guaranteed to get involved in immorality. It just flows that way. If you choose to live to fulfill your own desires and you stop worshiping God, eventually it will express itself in immorality. And that's why James says this next little word, really a very hard word, but it gives profound insight into what we've really been talking about, and it's why immorality is such a vicious wrestling match for us. He calls us in verse 4, you adulterous people. Don't you know that the friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now this little phrase, you adulteresses, introduces us to a development of the major idea I want to get across to you. The only way to be cured from sexual immorality is to find the ultimate lover. And I want to say that again. The only way that you and I are ever going to be able to beat sexual immorality the only way we're going to be able to beat our anger, the only way we're going to be able to beat our pride is to find the ultimate lover. And James calls friendship with the world adultery in these verses. Now, why does he do that? What is adultery? In this case, he uses something very specific. He calls all of us adulteresses. Now, how are we adulteresses? We are adulteresses when we take the love that is to be preserved for our husband alone. For our husband alone, and we bestow it on another. Every one of you wives, when you got married, made a commitment to your husband. And you bestow favors and, and you give your love to your husband. Now, in a strong marriage, I trust with all my heart that your husband didn't give you a long list of, now, I don't want you to hold hands with other guys anymore. I don't want you to kiss other guys at work anymore. I don't want you to be dating three and four times a week with other guys in our marriage. I want you to make my bed. I want you to cook my meals. How many of you had a list like that when you got married? Some of the wives worked out that kind of a covenant. No, you know what I'm talking about. You don't do that. And yet, if I were to ask you, how many wives do those things? You don't hold hands with other guys as a regular practice, and you don't kiss other guys, and you don't date other guys. There, what I'm trying to bring out is that in a relationship, when there's the intimacy of marriage, then there are, there are responsibilities, and there's the giving of love. There's a uniqueness is what I'm trying to get across to you. And I think all of you understand that. But I can't take that for granted because we're losing that in our culture. We're losing this idea of what it means to have a strong devotion and an intimacy and a unique oneness with one person. And Satan's working very hard to get us to lose that because if you lose that, you're without natural affection. 
Now, what God is saying is that Jesus Christ is our husband. In the Old Testament, God the Father presented the nation of Israel as his wife. It's the dominant symbol of the love relationship by which God illustrates us to us, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart. And he calls Israel his bride, his wife. And this tragic story of the Old Testament is how this wife is immoral, representing the immorality and the lack of loving God with all their heart that the Israelites were involved in. In the New Testament, it's not the, br the bride of Yahweh the Father, but it becomes the bride of the Son of God. And you and I are called as the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ, we are called the bride of Christ. Now, that's not just a symbol word. God is saying that the same kind of ultimate devotion, the same kind of, of unique, exclusive love that a bride should have for her husband is the kind of love that we should have with God. And what James is doing, he's contrasting love of the world with love of God. Now, I want to clarify something. As soon as I mention love of the world, some of you from certain kinds of background jump into your big five. You have defined the world as you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't do that. Like in my upbringing, you are of the world if you smoke, if you drink, if you go to movies, if you dance, if you do those things, then you're a lover of the world. And there's a list of about five biggies. Now, within that context, you can gossip a little bit. You can be very argumentative. You can be very pugnacious. That's not really under the rules and regulations because it's awfully hard to have a church composed where you have a big rule in order to be a member of this church, thou shalt not get angry. Nobody can be in that church. So you've got to make it some external things. Now, I'm not saying that there's not real insights into the world system that can come out of some of those rules and regulations. And I want all of you to think very carefully what you do do and what you don't do. But James is not talking about this particular external practice being of the world. He goes much deeper than that. And I want to speak to all of you this morning from all different backgrounds. The essence of the world is not a, a, a five-point rule and regulation outline. The essence of the world is an attitude. What is that attitude? The essence of the world is to worship your own desire for pleasure. That's the essence of the world. That's what James is saying. I want everyone to ask yourself, what drives me today? What is moving me today? What makes life worthwhile living today? What am I looking forward to today? And that'll tell you where your heart is. Do you know the reality of the matter is, as you sang together this morning, there is an objective husband. There is a groom that was looking forward to having you gather together this morning today. He couldn't wait for you to get here. And when you sang, that groom in heaven, his eyes lit up, his heart began to pound harder, his arms reached out for you. In fact, he can hardly wait to bring you to his side. And even when I talk like that, some of you have a hard time responding to that because that's not the kind of relationship you have with Jesus Christ. But that's really what he wants. He's that kind of a personal Lord. I'm concerned about my own heart. I think we're rapidly moving 
into the Ephesian church, the church that has a lot of accurate teaching without our first love. I think we're going through the motions a lot of times. I think we're keeping a lot of programs going. But I wonder whether as individuals we are really coming and allowing our hearts to be honest and then allowing those hearts to bubble forth with love for the Lord. Now, I'm not discouraged about that because I know that in a mature marriage, it takes time and it takes devotion and it takes commitment because the reality of this old heart of ours is it's constantly moving into routine it's constantly moving into boredom. It's constantly moving into, into just going through things in, in, a, in a surface way. And that's why James, this beloved ancient wise man, comes to us and says, watch out, you're adulterers. Now, what would an adulteress be? An adulteress would be someone who's thinking a whole lot more about the fun that we're going to have when we can do what we want to do, where we can listen to the things that we want to listen to, where we can be involved in the things that we want to be involved in, where we can make ourselves feel good. That's an adulteress if it's divorced from the love that we have for the Lord. And that's the essence of the world. The world isn't something that's out there. It's not so much a humanistic philosophy that's trying to take over the planet. That humanistic philosophy has been on this planet since Genesis chapter 3. And it's always trying to take over this planet. And I think so many times we're worried about the enemy without. That we don't realize that the world, the essence of the world, is an, is an attitude of adultery that's within and it cuts across all political barriers. It cuts across all philosophies. It can penetrate all of our hearts. And so what is James saying? Listen, the only cure for immorality is going to be to get down on your knees in your heart and fall in love with the ultimate love. God yearns with a holy jealousy for our first love. This true love is the preventative and the cure for our immoral lusts. Dave will develop this thought on our next Truth Encounter broadcast, so please invite a friend to join us next week as we encounter the truth about sexual relationships.